Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Stuart Braithwaite who is a musician, songwriter and the guitarist and vocalist with top Scottish band Mogwai. Stuart along with Dominic Aitchison and Martin Buller formed the band back in 1995 and Mogwai, now with Barry Burns who joined three years later, they continue to go from strength to strength. They are just about to release their 10th studio album As The Love Continues on February the 19th. And this Saturday, February the 13th, fans will be able to watch online a live gig which premieres the album, which the band recorded before Christmas at the Tramway Theatre in Glasgow. Stuart, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Oh, how are you doing? Great to, great to be on, Paul. Now, obviously, it's uh, you, you and I have spoke before about this, and it's a strange time, I suppose, for everyone, but, you know, for musicians. On the one hand, you must be excited with the, the prospect of the new album coming out. The frustration must be for you and the rest of the band you can't go and perform it live in front of an audience, which is what you always want to do because that's how you engage <clears throat> with your fans. Yeah, it's it's definitely a weird time. I guess the the only the only thing that's slight comfort is that everybody's in the same boat. Everyone, no matter what your job is or your life, everyone's been affected. No one's been able to get on get on as normal. Even even people that can still do their job are having to do it in different ways. So yeah, like everyone, we're just just getting on with it and. Hoping, hoping for more normal, nor, normal days in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's good that you know the the fact as you say you're still able to you've still been able to record the album. You did that last year, and you're able to bring that out this year. So, in terms of being able to work, that must have been you know obviously there's frustrations because you can't do everything normally. You've had to change the way you work, but the very fact you can still produce new music must be good for you. Yeah, and and that was a great thing last year actually, just having a focal point, something to look forward to. To work towards and then once it was done kind of starting on all the other things the mixing the artwork and yes yeah, it's, it's, it's been great having something on I think if it had been a off year then it, it would have been it would have been harder so I definitely definitely enjoyed that last year and I'm going to mention again at the end of the podcast but I'll mention at the start I said in the introduction the album comes out on the, the 19th of February but this podcast is coming out uh, on the Monday the 8th this coming Saturday people can watch the, the band. It's a, basically a premiere of the, the album. You recorded that gig at the tramway just before Christmas, which must have been great to play live, but again, strange experience because it's, it's you guys and everybody that's filming it, but you know, you don't have that, I suppose, that interaction and the response from the audience. Yeah, it was it was a bit different. I mean, it came, kind of reminded me of being on the radio or something, but it was it was great to, to see all our, our crew, our sound people and our guitar techs and just catch up with them. I mean, they've had a really horrendous time. They've their work's just stopped completely. So it's good to be back with them for a few days and play play the songs through. So I'm excited about folks seeing it. It should be good. Yeah, and if MD wants to either watch the, the gig or get the new album, if you go to www.mogwai.scot, there's details on how you can get a ticket for the gig on Saturday night. It's eight o'clock our time and also uh, get the album. So I suppose it's still exciting as a musician just to see what the response will be to the new music. Yeah, no, absolutely. We've just 
when we're recording this, had a handful of reviews come out and they've all been really positive. So that's, to be honest, that's that's one of the, the biggest, most nervous moments is waiting to see what people actually think about it because it's all very well you liking it, but if, if nobody else does, then you're, you're on to plums. So, <laughs> so no, the re- reaction so far has been good. That touch wood, that continues. Yeah. And I think, you'd, you know, towards the end of last year, you released one song from the album Dry Fantasy, and I think the reaction to that, I remember I'd said to you before, I, I heard it on BBC Six Music the morning it was first released, and the, I think the, the Twitter world seemed to go crazy uh, in a really positive way, which, which again, must have been great when you, when you kind of felt that response. Yeah, it's nice. It's it's nice, especially in this kind of time when we're all physically apart, just to kind of feel people's reactions, whether it's to music and same with other things, with even with football or or, or anything, just to be part of a sort of shared experience is really, really nice. Well, in terms of the, the podcast, obviously what I like to do with every guest is just kind of take you back on your literary journey of your life. And the first question I always ask people is your, your favourite book from childhood and the book that you've chosen is a book by Roald Dahl, it's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And, and what is it about that book that's, that's stuck with you through all these years? I think I think I like the imagination of it. Like, um, so also Roald Dahl's books are the only ones I can really remember reading when I was when I was a wee boy. And uh, I actually saw the, the film, the, the old film of it again recently, and it's, it's quite dark. So I, I like that. And I, I like that, I get the vibe that he didn't actually really like kids. He's kind of like punishing these kids for being greedy and being cheeky and all this kind of stuff. So no, I, I like, I love the imagination. I love him kind of going in the elevator at the end through the roof. And I still remember that was the follow-up, the, the great glass elevator, which I loved as well. And yeah, it's, it's one of the few things that's really kind of stuck with me. I think even though it's for kids, it's not, it's not kind of sickly sweet or anything. There's a wee bit of a bit of darkness to it, and yeah, very very funny, very funny book. Because it's funny, I, when I remember reading it as a child, and I always wished that I could have got out to the shop and bought a, a Wonka bar because they always sounded amazing Aye. when when they were Aye. described. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, I think, and I think both the films with Gene Wilder as Willy Wonka and then Johnny Depp, they do kind of go into that the kind of dark side of it that probably it's only when you read it when you're older that you kind of you realize that there's that element running through the book as well yeah yeah because when you're a kid you don't really think about anything i mean a lot of kids stories are quite dark they're about we could think of like red riding hood and all this kind of stuff there's a lot of, there's a lot of wayne's getting eaten or <laughs> 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 chucked in vats of chocolate and all this stuff so there's a lot of, a lot of weird stuff which is probably a, a good thing when you're a kid so you're kind of processing things in a childish way but that are kind of existential threats in the world you know I mean I remember as a kid seeing the news and grew up in the 80s and it's like there was bombs going off everywhere and it was it was pretty dark but um so maybe in a weird way having this kind of literary fantasy version of death is a good way of your kind of brain somehow computing it all because I wonder as well that idea of even if you, you don't quite realise it when you're younger that you maybe don't want to read books that are kind of you know very sweet and and anodyne and, and you know a nice happy ending even as a child without realising you you quite like that the wee the edge there is to it because as you say <laughs> he's a strange character Willy Wonka and uh, yeah you know <laughs> the fate that befalls some of the kids is you know it's not it's not the most pleasant thing no no if it was real life they'd have the police in the door already. <laughs> Because it's funny, when I was just doing a wee bit of research into the book and you mentioned the fact that there was the sequel, Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator, he actually had begun writing another one 
called Charlie in the White House, and he wrote one chapter of it, which apparently is on display in some museum. Oh, but really? never ended up finishing that one. Maybe that's maybe that's what the Trump presidency was. It was a. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> The Roald Dahl version of uh, American democracy. I mean, it's amazing. The and I think a lot of people growing up they would have read Roald Dahl books. I think that book alone, I think there's over twenty million copies been sold, which wow. is just phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It is amazing. And in terms of the the film version you mentioned, the original, where do you sit between the original with Gene Wilder and the the more up to date one with Johnny Depp? I definitely, I think I'm going for the older one. I mean, that was the one I saw when I was when I was a kid, and I think Gene Wilder's got that twinkle in his eye, hasn't he? Kind of like really encapsulates Willy Wonka because he's he's got that kind of so so does Johnny Depp to be fair, but the sort of slightly dark and also really sort of wondrous kind of personality to him. So yeah, I definitely go for the old one because it was the one the one I grew up with. I mean, did you read a lot of uh, Roald Dahl books, for example, even over and above Charlie and the Chocolate Factory when you were young? Yeah, I remember the the James the Giant Peach, the BFG. They're the ones the ones I remember the most. I wasn't I wasn't a really very booky kid, to be honest. I, I liked um, I kind of I was more into being outside and climbing trees and all that that kind of thing. Also, my my parents are very big book readers. My dad, my dad's my dad's no longer around, but he's probably the biggest reader I've known. He he could read a book in an afternoon. He taught himself to like skip the superfluous words and he would just absolutely annihilate books all the time he was a huge huge reader so like maybe I in some weird way kind of subconsciously kicked against that and kind of was more into well, obviously I got into music and was out playing on my skateboard and all that kind of thing but um yeah I definitely enjoyed it but it was it, it, it was when I was a wee bit older that I kind of it really kind of grabbed me because I also think as well you know that example that your parents you don't sit you down and say, right, you should read and this is what you do. But just by the fact that you see them, the fact that they read and, and books are such a part of the, the family that, as you say, maybe it takes you till you're a wee bit older, but it's always there because mm-hmm. the books have always been part of growing up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's important. You know, I think that's important to have kind of examples in life generally, isn't it? And having that kind of culture and being lucky that if I did want to read a book, there was loads and loads, loads kicking around, you know, which was great. In terms of uh, this literary journey, and if I take you from, from childhood and Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, and we go on to the kind of teenage formative years in the mm-hmm. book that you've chosen, uh, it's called Books of Blood by Clive Barker. Yeah. In fact, I actually remember reading um, a novel by Clive Barker called The Damnation Game. My dad managed to simultaneously read very highbrow books. He was massively into... James Joyce and T.S. Eliot and all this stuff, but also very lowbrow as well, like kind of pulpy horror horror books and all this kind of stuff. And I remember reading this Clive Barker book and it just really blown my mind of the kind of imagination and the kind of darkness to it. And uh, the one I mentioned was The Books of Blood, which is a collection of short stories, which was good as well, because when you're young, your attention span's not great. Can I get, well, I certainly got kind of put off by these massive thousand page books or whatever and this like the short stories so they're all like 30 40 pages long and i absolutely adored it and they they made a, a movie of one of one of his books hellraiser which i really was really into as well which is very subversive very very weird and really scary you're a teenage boy like uh, getting scared witless is, is is a lot of fun so i can i think that was i was really into those kind of horror books 
for quite a bit. And then I started reading more kind of weird. I remember reading The Wasp Factory by Ian Banks and then finding out about Irvin Welsh, reading Trainspotting, all that kind of stuff and reading more kind of slightly, I don't know what the terminology would be, but kind of underground, but not completely underground, but like non-mainstream fiction. And yeah, that that was definitely what I was kind of more into in my kind of later teenage and in my twenties. Because did you did you read uh, Stephen King as well when you were younger? Then uh, around that scene? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I would have would have read all of them. I still love Stephen King books as well. Um, but yeah, I was, I was into that, and and obviously also the movies. The Shining was a big favorite, and Carrie. So yeah, it was great. I found a quote from Stephen King about Clive Barker, and it was. I have seen the future of horror and his name is Clive Barker. And I thought if, if Stephen King is giving you that endorsement, then he's obviously doing something, right? Yeah. Clive Barker's great. And he actually, like, Dominic from Mogwai is a big Clive Barker fan as well. It's probably one of the things we, we bonded over, actually. Like, um, uh, he loved those books, like The Great and Secret Show and Imagica and all these. Because he kind of, he moved kind of beyond horror into more kind of fantasy, weird stuff, kind of parallel universe type stories and, yeah, they're all absolutely brilliant too. And as you say, at that age, that's the sort of thing that you... Because it's there's a wee bit of an edge to it, it's probably the sort of thing that you wouldn't necessarily be saying to your parents, look, this is what I'm reading. Although, as you say, your dad was a, a big fan as well. But I, they, they wouldn't have cared less, but I, you're right. Most most folk would think it was a bit weird. Because <laughs> the other Stephen King book, the book that I... And, and I've spoken about this a few times with people on the podcast, is he writes a book called Stephen King on Writing, which uh-huh. is... Probably the best book I've ever read in terms of giving advice to anybody who wants to oh, write. Oh, really? Well, I'd like to. I'd like to have a look at that. It's brilliant. It's kind of. It's a strange. It's kind of part memoir because he had. He nearly died. He was knocked down. He was out. I think walking or running, and uh, I think a drunk driver had knocked him down. You know, he was lucky to survive, and it was in the back of as that was part of his recuperation and recovery. He was writing about his recovery, but then also writing about his. I suppose being reflective and looking on. His uh-huh. career, how he'd got to that position. Some of the advice is brilliant for anybody, whether you're starting off writing or whether you're an established writer, because you're you're talking to somebody who has sold millions of copies of books, who so knows how to tell a story. I would thoroughly recommend that. Yeah, yeah, no, I'll definitely, I'll definitely check that out. That'd be great. The other thing that was interesting you just mentioned, obviously, then you're then going on to reading things like The Wasp Factory and Evan Welsh, and a lot of you know at that period, a lot of good Scottish writers were coming through, but talking in yeah. the kind of, kind of voice of Scotland and yeah. things, something like Trainspotting has been, I suppose, a pivotal book in terms yeah. of people writing and then obviously then the subsequent film and the way that blended the music as well. Yeah, James Kelman was another writer around there and I, th- I think that's really, really important because one thing I, I always found in when I was at school was that there was nothing about being Scottish. Very, very little history which is pretty amazing considering how interesting Scottish history is and very little about Scottish culture. And then suddenly you have this guy telling this story, very working class, very gritty story with these really interesting characters, clearly based on people he knew. And it felt very different. It felt very, yeah, like, I mean, it wasn't the background that I'd grown up in, so I wouldn't say it, it was reflecting my life, but it was closer to my life than Shakespeare or any of this kind of stuff or, or any of the great American writers that all that stuff was was completely different from any experience I had so I, th- I think that was really really important and it seems 
there was definitely a cultural moment around then. The same with music, a lot like when Arab Strap came along and just started singing in their own voice, you know, and just getting this real. I think people in Scotland became much more comfortable about who they were in the 1990s. And I know there's a lot of kind of pontification as to what that was all about, whether it was something to do with the city of culture or the parliament opening up or, I mean, who knows really, but definitely something happened, something clicked round about then. Yeah, because it's one of my, I've, I've mentioned this again loads of times, probably to the point of boring people on this podcast, but it was always, it's always been one of my pet hates. I, I grew up in an era where we didn't, for example, we didn't get any Scottish literature. And as you say, you have to discover that yourself. And there's this whole treasure trove of great mm-hmm. books that, you know, I think if you see yourself or your country or your background reflected in these books, it, mm-hmm. it resonates. And I wonder as well, you know, at that time, as you say, there was this kind of almost a confidence in Scotland in terms of people being able to express themselves in the arts. And you're right in the middle of that yeah. because the, the ban form in 1995. And I wonder even kind of subconsciously, you kind of, that gives you know, when you, when you guys form the band, it just gives you that impetus to want to be able to do your own thing and express yourself mm-hmm. through music. Yeah, and I mean, around about this time, I was very young, so I probably wasn't even thinking about things in in those terms, but I'm sure that had something to do with it, you know? Even just, like, see, seeing other bands like the Jason Mary Chain and Teenage Fan Club do really, really well, knowing they were from a few miles away from where I grew up, it definitely definitely made a big a big difference. Because it's funny, I always think it's, and, and I suppose those bands, the same as you, wouldn't necessarily see yourself as a, a role model. But no. I do think, but I do think it is important, you know, like if yeah. you say, if there's musicians now, you're, you know, up and coming musicians, and they see, you know, a band that has kind of your success and longevity, but come from the same area, and they think, well, those guys were where I was, so why can't I do it if they can do it? Yeah. And I think that's a yeah. brilliant thing. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's even just applies to music, I think it applies to everything, you know, I think it probably applies to gender and race and sexuality and everything, I think it's really important for there to be people like you having done things before so you can, so it can go in your head, well I can do that too, you know, that's why it's so important to promote diversity, you know. Was that the first time MD called you a role model, incidentally? It might be, yeah, it might be. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, Stuart Braithwaite. And Stuart, we're on to the third book choice that you've given me, and that is a book that you'd recommend to anyone. And the book that you've chosen is a book called People Who Eat Darkness by Richard Lloyd Parry. And the subtitle to that book is Love, Grief, and a Journey into Japan's Shadows. I mean, I had a wee quick glance about what the book's about. It's quite a, a dark book, but quite an important subject. Yeah, We've been very lucky and we've travelled a lot with the band and we've, we've been to Japan loads and loads of times. I think I've been there 16 times or something. And it's a country I really love. I've got some good pals there and had a really, really good time there. But it's it's a hard place to get to know. I mean, the, the, the language apart, Japanese people are quite reserved. They don't really give a lot away. Reading this book, I realised how little I knew about Japan. The book, is a, it's a non-fiction book. The writer is the Times... Tokyo correspondent and basically it's a really in-depth look at this murder this young woman who was a British Airways hostess who ended um, air hostess who then went on to be a hostess which is these women that work in these these bars essentially just pouring old guys drinks or whatever and this maniac murdered her and 
it's the story of it, her story, which is important, the story of the guy who did it, and just everything about it, the the way the police dealt with it, the way the media dealt with it, the way the British media and the British political class dealt with it. I think it was Gordon Brown was the Prime Minister, but he got involved. And it's just a fascinating story. And I couldn't put I could not put it down. And everyone I've recommended it to has felt the same way. So I kind of and I got it really randomly. I think we had a day off in Portland, Oregon, which has a great big, huge bookshop, which I can't remember the name of, but it's famous in Portland. And I think I just liked the cover. I was like, oh, it looks interesting. And then absolutely smashed it in a day or two. And yeah, every, everyone I've recommended it to has really, really loved, loved it. I've got, he's written another book about the tsunami, which is one of these ones that's sitting on a shelf and I'm, I know it'll be amazing, but I know it'll also be so harrowing that uh, it doesn't feel the right time to read it just now, but I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to reading it at some point. Because I'm, I'm interested in you say, you know, it's the, the cover that first catches your eye when you go in the bookshop, because yep. I'm a big believer in, to an extent, judging a book by its cover, because that's the first thing you see, you know, that gets you to pick the book up. And I suppose that's the same, I suppose it must be for when you're doing artwork for albums, because that's a piece of art as well within the art within the art, I suppose. It can go the other way as well, though. I've actually, I've actually, I've read a few books on Kindle. I've got a Kindle, which is great just for convenience. And someone will recommend me a book, or I'll see it and get it, and then I'll see the actual book in a shop, and I'll be like, I would never have picked that up. That looks, <laughs> that looks rotten. But I'll know that the book was actually great. So yeah. it, can, it can go either way. But um, yeah, it's a funny one. There seems to be. I think the marketing departments really go for it. Now you see all the, a lot of books look the exact same. So they're obviously like whoever's the big, whoever's had the big hit at the time, they'll, they'll literally just copy what their book looked like. Like um, eh, what was the one? Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn. Pretty much every kind of thriller book looks the exact same as that now. So they kind of, they kind of go for it. Worse, worse than that, I think for a while, just about every thriller book that came out had to have the word girl in the title. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Because the thing about when I, I say I, mean, I just had a wee look about uh, what People Who Eat Darkness is about, and it struck me it must have been a tough book for him to write because as you as you mentioned, you're telling you know the story of a culture, but also you have to tell the girl. I think it was Lucy Blackman her story as well in a sensitive mm-hmm. way, and that must have been difficult. You know, a skill as a writer as a journalist to be able mm-hmm. to do that and not to be either mawkish or looking to kind of almost cash in on on a, a real yeah. tragedy. Yeah, it's really respectful. And he, because I think that's a, a mistake that happens a lot with true crime, where they obsess on the criminal and they don't talk enough about the, the victims. There was a really great documentary on the BBC about the Yorkshire Ripper, and it was all about the victims, the victims surviving families. And it was really, really, really great. And then a, a more recent one came on Netflix, and it was a bit more about the crimes. And I, I, I wasn't as comfortable with that. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's interesting the kind of obsession with crime, isn't it? Because People are oddly fascinated, me included. And whereas, if you actually saw someone committing a crime, you'd you'd run a mile when you're yeah. or something. But you're happy enough to to read about it. It's strange. I, I find I can read crime novels. I find books about real crimes quite difficult, and I think it's because they are real. I think it's because yeah. it kind of goes to the heart of the kind of blackness of what some people yeah. are capable of doing, and that that, that kind of unnerves me a wee bit. Yeah, I know. As I mean, I've read I read. Um, a book about Jimmy Savile called In Plain Sight, and I felt absolutely traumatised. Trauma- it was a very well-written book, a really good book, but just thinking of this, 
evil man just getting away with this stuff in in plain sight was was absolutely absolutely horrendous but yeah you're right it can be a bit much it's definitely something i probably dabble in rather than consume over and over and over and over again because in, in terms of your reading do you do you read more fiction or non-fiction or is it kind of like if you say you go into a bookshop or whatever and you or somebody recommends something you put it on your kindle and and that's how you end up reading I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a hoarder, so I've got piles of books, piles of books I haven't read yet. I probably go between fiction and non-fiction. I read a lot about a lot of music books, books by musicians, books about records, that kind of thing. But I'll kind of intersperse that with with fiction. Actually, um, when the lockdown first started, I was phoning my mum every every day, and um, my mum's a big reader. She's very into crime fiction, so I'd start reading the same books as her, so we could just blather about it. So I've kind of become definitely more into crime fiction of late it's become a bit of an obsession for me it's good fun really especially as there's so much great scottish crime fiction i think one of the books i mentioned is a crime fiction book but um i, de- I definitely enjoy it i mean that's quite a nice thing as well just you know that kind of shared reading experience because i saw actually recently kevin bridges had put a tweet out he just finished reading shuggy bane and uh-huh. he then either he gave it to his mom or his mom gave it to him and then it just they then have a, a, a conversation of about half an hour just talking about the book. And I thought, that's a really nice connection. Yeah, yeah. it's quite funny, actually, because my mum's quite sque- <laughs> squeamish, but she reads these books with these horrendous murders all the time. I'm like, <laughs> how can you handle that? She goes, oh, it's not real. Well, fair enough. <laughs> I mean, do you, do you find, obviously, in, under normal circumstances, you're maybe touring quite a lot. So, mm. you know, there's a lot of travelling, a lot of downtime in between gigs. Do you find that reading takes up a lot of that time and that gives you a bit of time or are you, are you doing other things within that? I do quite a bit of reading on planes and, and that kind of thing, but yeah, always so knackered travelling. Sometimes I don't even have the concentration to really, to, I'll probably listen to podcasts or something like that just because it takes up zero energy. But um, it is definitely a good a good escape. It is a good escape. I suppose I, I never really thought of that when you're saying, I suppose after every, the energy that you must have to put into every gig there's an exhaustion after that that I suppose as you say sometimes you just want to you know put a pair of a set of headphones on and just really chill out yeah yeah there's a lot of that it's a lot there's a lot a lot of very early morning flights and stuff like that they seem to book musicians on the most (laughs) anti-social travel travel arrangements of all time which no one told me when I was when I was 16 but I I would have studied harder and went and got a proper job (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you don't mean that at all no I don't (laughs) You mentioned there that uh, you read quite a lot of books about music, books by musicians, and that kind of takes us nicely on to the next book choice, and that was a book that you couldn't be paid to read again, and the book that you chose was Substance Inside New Order by Peter Hook, who of course used to be the, the bassist in uh, New Order, and why that book? Uh, you know, I enjoy most books, so this was quite a hard one, and I, I feel it's a wee bit unfair actually to do, because I've read all of Peter Hook's books, and... His one on Joy Division is one of my favourite music books, a great book. His book about the Hacienda is really, really good as well. But there was something about this one. He's had a bad falling out with New Order. He's not in the band anymore. And he's so bitter about it that I think it overrides the story because he's so personally aggrieved with the rest of the band that I don't think he manages to, to tell the story without it sounding bitter. For that reason, I didn't particularly enjoy it. Maybe it wasn't the right time for him to write it because he was. I think at that point was still in litigation with them and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, uh, well, it wasn't great. I didn't think. 
it's just kind of sad if you think of the you know the history that they had together through yeah. Joy Division and then New Order for it to end after so many years so acrimoniously and, and almost like those divisions you can't see them being healed anytime soon. No, like he he went and slagged off Jillian, the keyboard player who's married to Stephen, the drummer, and you're like, how are you going to sort that out? You know, like that's a step too far, you know. Yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame, you know. It's a great bass player, big part of the band, but aye, no, no, that that book wasn't for me. Because I actually saw my my daughter was living in America for a couple of years, and she was staying in a uh-huh. town town just outside Michigan, and we'd gone over to see her. And it just so happened that when we were over there, Peter Hook and the Light were playing in this random wee town in Michigan. So we went to see them. And the first half of the show, he plays New Order. And then the second half of the show, he plays Joy Division. And it was brilliant. It was a, yeah. so obviously, I, I, I wasn't lucky enough. I worked beside a guy who was lucky enough to have seen Joy Division when they, uh-huh. they played. And I'm always envious whenever he talks about yeah. it. And it was a great, it was a great gig. And he, he was really, really good. Yeah, he's still, do, he's, he's doing his thing. And even that, I think that, I think the rest of you are a wee bit grumpy about him doing that. And yeah, it's just it's too much, too much dirty linen getting washed in public. And I guess that's the thing. Like Mancunians are a bit like Glaswegians as well, aren't they? They, they can't bite their tongue. <laughs> <laughs> I read a book last year, Deborah Curtis's kind of story of her uh-huh. life with, with Ian Curtis, which yeah. was a really interesting book because it kind of it gave a really, I mean, it was a no holds barred portrayal of. Ian Curtis, good and bad, which yeah. I was very honest of her, but I was quite taken aback by it. Yeah, that's an incredible book as well, actually, touching from a distance. I've probably read every book about Joy Division, but I'm a huge, huge fan. The best one I would say I would recommend is by John Savage. Let me find out the name of it, because that was incredible. And it's uh, basically there was a great Joy Division documentary with loads of interviews. And basically, uh, John Savage, the journalist, did the interviews. And this is, he's collected the interviews together to tell the story. So it, it's just quotes, but from everyone involved in Joy Division, it tells the story of the band absolutely beautifully. Beautifully, The name of the book is This Searing Light, The Sun and Everything Else, Joy Division, The Oral History, which is absolutely brilliant. But yeah, De- Deborah Curtis's book was great too. I've actually not read Stephen Morris's book yet. That's in my, that's in my pile. I'll be getting into that soon. So I think, has he not got a second part? Yeah. So, you know, I'm yeah. quite interested to... I think he's quite a fascinating character as well. I'm quite interested to see what he's got to say about it all. Yeah, I think yeah, I think he's very responsible for the sound of New Order. I think he, like, got into kind of music technology and pushed the band in that direction. That's the impression I get. So, yeah, looking forward to that. I mean, in terms of, obviously, I'd mentioned right at the very start that, that you guys have been on the go for, for over 25 years now, and... I think last time I spoke to you, I mentioned it, particularly in that music business, that's not a common thing for bands. So not only just the fact that you still all got on, but just the fact that you're still as, as relevant and as popular, you know, so many years later, that's a kind of, it's, it's almost one of those things, it's hard to probably put your finger on why that happens. It's such an intangible thing because very few bands are able to achieve that. And I don't even know. I, I think we quite enjoy it. I think that's the answer I usually give is we still enjoy it. And people can tell that. People can tell if you can't be bothered or you've kind of run out of ideas. But I think we're still excited about it and like each other's company. And, and we're very lucky. It's, it's, it's quite weird to think about. And has anybody, has anybody written any books about the band that you're happy with? Or has anybody ever approached you or, have, or, or with a view to writing anything? Well, we've got a few people have talked to us about it. And both we were, we were happy with both. But no one's ever... In fact, someone else, someone in Italy asked that. 
it's never happened. But yeah, one day, well, all the people that I've spoke to us are good folk. I'm sure, I'm sure they do a good job. The people that have, we've mentioned it to. I suppose that's the thing that you probably it's somebody that you want who not only just is a fan of the band but is able to is a good writer as well because you want to tell every band has got a, an interesting story but you want somebody to be able to tell that properly exactly yeah and probably kind of try and get the the personalities and I've read a lot of music books that are kind of very fact based and kind of it's better to try and kind of get get under the surface a wee bit I think that they're the ones that I get the most out of definitely because you know the you know when the records come out and what songs are on the records and who produced them it's more to me the personalities involved and the their backgrounds and how they ended up there that, that I find interesting because I actually remember reading Johnny Marr's autobiography about a year or two ago which was quite fascinating that's in my pile too <laughs> of ones to read because he kind of goes into the whole I suppose there's probably elements that you would probably appreciate more than me because he's kind of <laughs> getting the whole production of the the records and how they came about uh, you know, from a musician's point of view, as well as telling the story of his upbringing and what happened with the Smiths. I think I think that's important. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of good ones. Though the Morrissey one was unreadable. I remember he wrote a book. <laughs> yeah, I think it was just <laughs> self-indulgent, I think. Oh, aye. Yeah, it was too much. It was too much. In fact, that should have been the one. That, in fact, if it's too late, I'll, I'll, I'll remove uh, Peter Hook and put Morrissey in. That was murder. <laughs> <laughs> you can put it alongside it. Aye. <laughs> uh, in terms of the the questions, I'm on to the last of the book choices now, Stuart, and that is the either the last book you read or the book that you're currently reading. You mentioned earlier on talking about a, a Scottish crime book, and the, the book is The Cutting Room by Louise Welsh. Yeah, yeah, I'm absolutely loving this. This is great. I live I live in the West End of Glasgow, and the book's set in the West End, which I also really like. There's another great Scottish crime writer, Alan Park, whose books are set in the West End as well. So kind of quite like kind of recognizing the old the odd bar or building or something like that but this book's really good it's the main character is a guy works in an auction house a gay guy they're clearing out a house and find all this weird stuff so there's a big mystery over these really weird dark photos they find and yeah really good characters in it and very very well written very kind of evocative very detailed character descriptions and yeah it's, it's 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 one of the one of the best crime books i've read Really enjoying it because that was, I think, that was Louise's debut. Came out in two thousand and two, and she was on the podcast. And I think she's a great writer, and yeah. uh, I mean, I, I absolutely love that book when I read it. But yeah. what I thought was interesting, and I was speaking to her about it, was the you know you mentioned that the main character is gay, but well, she wanted to that that isn't central to the book. It's central to him. It's just part of who he is, and I think. Again, that was important. We mentioned earlier on about having role models or, or having reflective of a society in terms of all sorts of the yeah. diversity. That book was important in terms of his sexuality was part of who he was, but it wasn't. It's a crime book, so I think that yeah. is good for people reading it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's nothing kind of tokenistic or anything about it. It's just it's him, and uh, yeah, really, 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 really enjoying it. And it's good to know. She, so she's got loads of other books too. I'll read them too. Funny, she has a, a trilogy of books called the Plague Times trilogy, which she actually bizarre. She kind of wrote obviously before what we're going through just now, but it is they are kind of like almost a kind of pandemic type. Oh, books. really? So I don't know whether you want to wait until we're, we're out at the other end of this before. I do. <laughs> before before reading that, interestingly, you know that some sometimes when you're reading a book, and you especially if you like, can I sometimes can visualize it cinematically, and you, mm-hmm. you start to think who would play the main main characters and. For a while, there was there was talk of this book uh, being made into film. I think it, you know somebody bought the film rights, and they were going to cast Robert Carlyle as the main character. 
Um, but unfortunately, it never never get made. But I thought he'd have beat. He would have been a. He would have been good. I I kind of imagine imagine having that kind of tough but slightly scrawny kind of look about him. So I think that I think he would have been a good a good shout. You mentioned earlier on, you know, the fact that we, obviously when we were growing up, we maybe didn't get that breadth of Scottish literature. So I always love if somebody, you know, that like I mentioned earlier on, Shuggy Bain, the fact that it wins the Booker Prize. It's a book set in Glasgow in the 80s. It's by a Scottish writer. And there's just something, it kind of, I'm not sure if it just gives you hope for the future of Scottish literature, but it just gives you a wee boost that it's people from your own background, yep. your own country that are writing these great books that are appreciated beyond the borders of, of Scotland. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think I think it's really, really important to get those kind of examples. And it seems to me that Scottish literature is maybe it's just because I'm reading a lot just now, but it seems to be in a real having a big moment. There's new books coming out all the time. Really, really, really great authors. I'm friends with David Keenan, the author. He's he's doing really, really great stuff. John Niven, another pal's books are brilliant. And yeah, really, really seems to be an exciting time. Is that, is that difficult when you're reading a friend's book? I suppose it's the opposite side for them if they're then listening to your music because it's... You know, if they're any good, which those two are, are very, very good, you completely forget. You just get lost in the story, you know? Sometimes with John, because he's quite a funny guy, I'll kind of... I'll, I'll imagine him saying whatever's happening in the book that's very funny. But no, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I actually know quite a lot of writers. It's, 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 it's kind of funny. Luke Sutherland that... Plays violin with Mogwai sometimes. He's he's an author. He's, he's not had a book out for a while, but I really really enjoyed his books too. And no, I, I usually forget. I usually forget who the person is when I'm reading it. And I suppose as you say, if you end up you read the book and you like it, then it just it just adds something because then you go, that's that's a friend of mine and they've wrote a great book. Oh no, absolutely. But I kind of almost at the end of the, the podcast, Stuart. As I said right at the very beginning. I mean, I'm guessing it's going to be a busy time for you, although you're not going to be actually going on tour, but I'm, I'm sure with the new album coming out as the love continues, there's going to be a lot going on in terms of promoting that for, for all of you. Yeah, so it's, it's just Zooms all day, tell it, trying, to, <laughs> trying, to, trying to punt our wares. No, it's it's good. It's, it's funny not being on tour, but I kind of feel we're still kind of managing to get the word out. And I appreciate you having me on. Do your bit as well, Paul. Yeah, and as I mentioned at the start, if anybody... The album comes out in February the 19th, but if anybody wants to watch Mogwai, it's the first time you get to hear the whole album, go to www.mogwai.scot. It's details on how you can get a ticket for the live gig on Saturday, February the 13th. Uh, I'm really looking forward to the new album. I, I, when I, the last time I spoke to you, I did mention that Mogwai is, is my music of choice when it comes to when I'm doing my own writing. That, and I found it really, really helpful just to have that music. So I think if and when I get another album, another album, another novel published, I'm going to have to give you guys a name check. Oh, brilliant. I appreciate that. That's what I like to hear. <laughs> um, but listen, all the very best with uh, As The Love Continues. And thanks very much for joining me on the podcast. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Paul. See you later on. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast. And I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.